And I'm going to read verses 32 through 38. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray as we uh, dig into it that uh, you would bless your people, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to see uh, uh, all that you have purchased for us in Christ Jesus. We love you, and uh, we want to respond to you with love, devotion, and uh, we want to receive from you the grace that we need to live out your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week we looked at the incredible power that God's word has. We saw that it is indeed living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It uh, changes us, sanctifies us, it turns enemies into friends, uh, does all kinds of things in us, and we saw that when we take that Word upon our lips, when we make it our confession by faith, that miracles can happen, finances can be provided. Uh, we can see uh, changes in the world around us, demons fleeing, just like they fled when Christ used the Word with them. And so last week we looked at the power of God's Word, but there's always a danger in taking a doctrine out of context or of taking a verse out of context and that's uh, definitely true of verse 32. We must not think that God's power is just automatically displayed in our lives apart from our human responsibility any more than we would say to a farmer, well, God many times in the Scripture has promised to provide for farmers and for the farmer to say, well, I guess I don't need to plow and you know, sow the seed and weed and water and try to do the harvest. Uh, that's just not the way God works. He blesses us in the context of covenant faithfulness. And I think Deuteronomy 28 is quite clear on that. Now, one word picture down through the years that has really helped me to uh, have this burned into my memory is the picture of the man with the withered hand. And here's what Jesus said to him, Matthew 12:13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. And I want you to notice that it was as he stretched out his hand that his hand was healed. Now, I've mentioned to you before that this man with the withered hand could have said, well, Lord, you're asking me to do something impossible. You need to heal my hand first, then I will stretch it forth. Uh, and, and so, why don't you do your work, then I'll do my work. But that's not what, uh, what happened. In fact, if he had taken that attitude, he may indeed not have been healed is it was as he, by faith, willed to obey Christ, as he, by faith, willed to do the impossible, that Christ's words had power to bring healing into his life. So we cannot take faith and responsibility apart. The two really go uh, hand in hand. And that's true for most aspects of the power of the Word that we looked at last week. And I want us to go quickly through uh, each of these verses. We're going to look at 
how some things can rob us of this power. And then we'll go back through the same verses and show the context in which um, this power can be seen. Now, the first robber or the first thief is covetousness. Uh, When you let covetousness creep into your heart, it will rob you of every benefit and power that we talked about last week. Verse 33, Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. That was the context in which Paul had such power in his ministry. He had developed a steward's heart. Now, this is uh, uh, really an irony when you think about it. When we covet, we end up losing. When we covet, we're wanting to steal what rightly belongs to somebody else, but we end up being stolen from by that very covetousness. And this means that God's power is not channeled to those who are self-seeking. It is channeled to those who want to do everything to God's glory. Millions of dollars were channeled through the hands of George Mueller back in the 1800s. That was a lot of money. And I believe the reason that they were channeled in through his hands by God, and it all came through prayer. I mean, he didn't even ask people for money. I think the reason God trusted him with so much was because he had a steward's heart. He used it all for God's kingdom. And God continued to pour more and more into his life. He had an incredibly powerful ministry. Now contrast that with Isaiah 57's description of a man who could not find any power in his life. He starts with a description of who his power resides with, Isaiah 57:15, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So he dwells with that kind of a person. Then he goes on to describe a person who he could not bless with power. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. He was a man that God hid from. He did not display his power in that person's life. Why? Because of his covetousness. And so if you last week longed to have more of God's power residing into your heart and in your life, take heed to Psalm 119, verse 36, which says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Those two are opposites. They do not dwell together. Second thing that will rob us is laziness. Now, there are some who might look at the enormous power of the Word last week and think, okay, I'm going to sit back in an easy chair and watch God uh, work in my life. But God ordinarily blesses us through our diligence, whether it's diligent work or diligent investment, diligent memorization of the Scripture, uh, whatever it may be. Verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. He was diligent. Third thing, robs us of power's lack of compassion. Verse 35, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. Now, let me give you one example. There's a lot of examples in Scripture of this, but I love this one in Isaiah 40 because it's the uh, Scripture many of you have memorized that talks about Uh, Those who wait upon the Lord, who wait upon Yahweh, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But it starts by answering a complaint by Israel, where Israel is saying, how come I don't have this power? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, 
My way is hidden from Yahweh, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Why, Lord, are you not answering my prayer? Why are you not with us? Why don't we see this kind of power? Why am I not rising up with wings like eagles? And God's answer in the next three verses was to say, here's what I delight in. For example, he says, he gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Now, how is that an answer? Well, it's an answer because their heart was not where God's heart was at. Uh, uh, when, we, when we help the weak, God delights to help us in our weakness. When we neglect the weak, God says, okay, I will neglect you in your weakness. For example, in that same passage, verse 24, as soon as uh, you plant something, he says, I'm going to blow on it. I'm going to destroy it uh, because of your lack of compassion. Okay, third thing that robs us of God's power is a lack of generosity. Verse 35 of Acts 20 continues by saying, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When we focus on give me that I might have instead of give me that I might give, that I might use it for your kingdom, then uh, we are not standing really in the channels or the rivers of God's blessing. Fifth context of power is prayer. Verse 26 says, when he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. Now, we all know that prayerlessness leads to powerlessness. And then the sixth and the seventh robbers of power are lack of heart and lack of love for the brethren. Verses 37 through 38, Then they all wept freely, fell on Paul's neck, and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now, contrast that with the way that Corinth treated Paul, or for that matter, the way Corinth treated each other. And you will understand pretty quickly why it was that Ephesus was blessed so much more than Corinth was. Now, I see all of this as a context within which God loves to bless, and I see the absence of these things as an explanation for lack of blessing. Again, all you need to do is read 1 Corinthians and you'll see that the church there was receiving judgments rather than all of the blessings that were stored up for them. Uh, God says that uh, many of them were weak, some of them were sick, some of them have even died as a result of the power of God's Word. Now, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, uh, what robs us, because I think it's only hinted at in this passage. What I want to spend the bulk of the sermon on is looking at how do we put on the characteristics that are described in these last few verses. Uh, I think you will reap a harvest. In fact, it's impossible not to reap a harvest if you have these qualities. And let's back up to verse 33, again, which shows that Paul had a steward's heart instead of being covetous. Paul said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, that is an amazing, amazing statement because... Just that year, Paul had written the, the book of Romans, and in Romans 7, Paul says, I struggled and struggled and struggled with covetousness in my early years as a Christian. Uh, let me read from that um, chapter. Covetousness was such a habit, he says, he did it without even thinking. Verses 7 through 8, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Paul did not do the things that he wanted to do, and he was doing the things he didn't want to do, and it was driving him crazy, so much so that he said, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? 
Now, that's where many Christians stop reading, unfortunately, and they spend the rest of their lives thinking, oh, I'm never going to get out of this Romans 7 state. You know, my life is characterized by uh, Romans chapter 7. Paul does not stop there. He ends chapter 7 by saying how it is he will be delivered from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who delivers us. And then in chapter 8, he describes how every believer can gain victory over, yes, even the lusts of the heart. Now, granted, uh, the, the closer we draw to God, the more light is, shines upon us. So we're, all our lives, we're going to see, oh, there's more sin in my life than I had seen before. We're never going to be completely free from sin. But we need to take Paul's statement seriously here that he had conquered this covetousness, at least during the last three years of his ministry in, in um, um, uh, Ephesus. He said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He had learned how to conquer that. Now, here's the question. Have you learned how to conquer your besetting sin? That was Paul's besetting sin back then. And if not, don't give up. Keep going back to the source of grace, to the rock of your salvation. Keep realizing that His strength is sufficient to take you from a Romans 7 experience into a Romans uh, 8 experience. Uh, what blessings we receive when we have a steward's heart. No longer covetous. It's not just for me, me, me. Lord, continue to expand my borders that I might serve your kingdom. God loves to pour more and more and more blessing into your lives. In the uh, a parable of the talents, Jesus said that the men who were faithful with the money that they had been given were told this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So, if we want to enter more and more fully into the blessings and the power that we looked at last week, uh, one of the keys here is to have a steward's heart. You cannot but grow in your stewardship the more faithful of a steward you are. God will give you more. It's just the way He works. Second prerequisite is diligence. Verse 34 again. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. Now, some of you desire that God would prosper you with more financial wealth, and I think there is absolutely nothing wrong with such a desire if you've got a servant's or a steward's heart. There's nothing wrong with the wealth of an Abraham simply because a Solomon abused his wealth. Okay? There's nothing wrong with the riches of a Simon Peter just because Judas Iscariot was a thief. And he abused his finances. So desiring greater finances is not the problem. But here's the issue. God does not usually plunk a huge chunk of money miraculously into your bank account. And you think, whoa, where did that come from? And uh, then you get to use it. No, actually the bank's going to wonder where it came from as well. Uh, God ordinarily pours His blessing through our diligence. And so what we need to be saying is, Lord, I trust You to provide for me by prospering the work of my hands. We should not be saying, Lord, I trust You to provide for me uh, while I'm lazy and I'm not doing anything with my hands. Okay? There's, there's a big difference between the two. Diligence is part of the covenant faithfulness that Deuteronomy 28 says God is going to bless, that He guarantees He will bless. And by the way, the Deuteronomy 28 blessings go way beyond what we would expect our diligence to provide. So they're miraculous. It says, if you're diligent, I'll work through the context of that covenant faithfulness and I'll pour more and more and more into your life. Okay, third key to blessing is being compassionate. 
Verse 35, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And God's going to make sure that there's always some weak people out there that we need to support to test us, like an integrity check of our hearts to see where our hearts are at. Where is our heart at? Do we have compassion for those who are weak? I think this is really talking about mercy ministries. God says, I delight to bless those who bless the weak. Okay, fourth, generosity is the visible manifestation of that compassion. So verse 35 goes on to say, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now why would that be, that it's more blessed to give than to receive? I think this is just one of the patterns of God's laws of harvest that He has established uh, in this world. Proverbs 11.24 says, There is one who scatters. This is the person who gives. He scatters abroad. There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Now, mathematically, that may not make a whole lot of sense. You would think that the person who's going to prosper is the guy who's miserly. You know, he's holding on to everything that he can. But God loves, He chooses to miraculously bless the person who loves to give. And He gives back more in abundance. Luke 6, verse 48 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put back into your bosom. In other words, God's going to give lots more than He gives to, uh, than you have given to Him. Now, God in His providence, on the other hand, He loves to take away from people who are miserly, who are holding on to things, who are not generous with their money. He loves to take it away. This is just one of the principles of harvest that He has set up. Here's how Paul words it in 2 Corinthians 9. This is verses 6 through 11. But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Wow! <laughs> it's an incredible passage because He's just pouring promise after promise. When you're generous with your money, God's going to keep pouring back into your life far more than your generosity, you would think, uh, would ordinarily qualify. Now, this doesn't just apply to finances. He's explicitly applying it to finances in that chapter. But he's saying when you're generous with your discipleship of your children, God's going to bless with a harvest that's far greater than what you've put in. Uh, when, you are, uh, when you're generous with uh, your hospitality or overcoming evil with good or encouraging words or whatever it may be, he causes His power to flow. Fifth key to blessing is prayer, and prayer was the constant impulse of Paul's heart. He didn't leave people without praying for them. He didn't go on a trip without praying or preach without praying. Everything was done through prayer. And so verse 36 says, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. I'm not going to dwell a lot on the prayer side, but I do want to comment on that posture for prayer, kneeling down. 
while there are other modes for praying, I think this is one of the most common modes that you will find in the Scripture. It, uh, I think, symbolizes our subservience and our dependence upon God. And I've many times wished that these chairs, you know, that we have here could have those little kneeling benches so that you could kneel down uh, without it being uh, a distraction to others because I think it would be great to have it as a part of every uh, worship service. Now, I've kind of resisted doing this because even though it, it's, it's a part of what we're doing because these chairs are so close together, it, it's kind of awkward to kneel down without having your head in somebody's back or kicking your chair back into the legs behind you. Uh, some of you could perhaps turn around and, and, and kneel or at least bend one knee like this while you're sitting. There could be something that you could do. But I would encourage you, if you're able, you're not pregnant, you're not, you know, it's not going to squish the people around you to do it, uh, to especially during the times of supplication and confession, to just drop, drop a knee or in some way to uh, express your your humility before the Lord. I think this is a posture that we need to do in our families. We need to get used to kneeling. Paul didn't think it was weird. Now, maybe the mariners of the ship who were looking on, what are these guys doing, might have thought it was weird, but he didn't care. This was so appropriate uh, for coming before the God, uh, the maker of the universe for grace and for power. Now, the next thing we see in Paul was that he was a full-hearted man. Now, the heart, if you look it up in any dictionary, the Greek, the heart in the Greek is made up of the mind. Why? Because as a man thinks in his heart, right? So it's made up of the mind, of the will, and of the emotions. And here in this context, it's those emotions freely expressed through your body to God and to those who are around you. Now, some people are so reserved, they have a hard time expressing their mind, their will, and their emotions. But take a look at verse 37. Then they all freely, uh, excuse me, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. They wept freely. They didn't stuff their emotions as if, oh, emotions are inappropriate. We can't let anybody know that I feel sad. You know, we can't let anybody know that this is tough for me. Instead, they recognized that a full-hearted expression of who they were with each other, that they cared for each other, was so appropriate to these circumstances. And I think we need to get used to, uh, to, to, to expressing in this way. Uh, it's okay to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And of course, you recognize I'm quoting from Romans, where he commands us to do exactly that. The Ephesians had full-heartedness. Now, Corinth seem to lack this full-heartedness, at least to Paul, but it seems like even to each other, they lacked it when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. And by the time 2 Corinthians was written, it seems at least some, perhaps even a majority of them, had regained this full-heartedness with each other. So we can put on this full-heartedness just like they did. Full-heartedness is having the whole heart engaged, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Now, if you want to see that illustrated, read David's Psalms. What a full-hearted man. It's just incredible when you, you read that. You can see why David was called a man after God's own heart. Now, I grew up stuffing my emotions, uh, thinking that this was, especially for guys, you know, that this was not appropriate to express that. Uh, I had to give my reservations to the Lord and practice this. I want you to notice something else about this passage. Notice that these are grown men hugging each other and kissing each other. Whoa! 
<laughs> this too is an area I think many men have been robbed of uh, in America. Now, you'll see it in other cultures. You'll see it in Italy. You'll see it in South America. You'll see it in Asia. You'll see it in, in many African countries. Uh, South America that I mentioned, yeah. I think it's just the English and the Germanics and the Swedes and Americans who are so stodgy about this. Uh, now, I'm not going to force you to give me hugs and kisses, even though I wish we could all do this freely and not freak out about it. Uh, <laughs> in fact, um, the, uh, th- this church, I think everybody knows, if you're not convinced from the Scriptures that what I'm teaching is right, just ignore it, right? You don't have to... Uh, you don't have to agree with me, but I do want you to be Bereans, and I'm going to read you some scriptures that uh, I think indicate everybody ought to be doing this. In Luke 7, verse 45, Jesus rebukes Simon the Pharisee, saying, You gave me no kiss. That was an interesting thing. It's like he should have gotten a kiss. And we could say, well, yeah, that was Jewish culture, and it was. In Jewish culture, a host should have given Uh, the guy that was coming in a kiss. This was the normal greeting. This was an expression, I love you. I I welcome, you know, you're you're welcome in this home. Now, what about family? In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus said, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, I grew up not really doing that kind of stuff. My dad was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, just like I am. Wasps is what they call us. And we have a hard time, you know, expressing our emotions uh, like this. When my dad uh, dropped me off at boarding school, I mean, I knew my dad loved me. And he was just a reserved man. He shook my hand as a six-year-old as he dropped me off at uh, boarding school. It just was not something that was done. So this was awkward uh, for me to uh, engage in this. And so I can fully sympathize with you guys if you say, hmm, this is going to be a real stretch for me, Phil, to be engaged in it. I can sympathize. After college, I had a hard time hugging anybody. And so I realized in the Scripture, you know, we really need to express our love physically for each other. So I started practicing with my sister and my mom. And my dad finally, you know, he let me hug him too. Uh, My dad loved to be hugged by my sister. My littlest sister, she was just such an extrovert. She didn't care. She'd just jump in his lap and give him a hug. And you could tell he loved it. But... um, so I practiced with, then with my friends, which was really breaking out of my comfort zone a little bit. And I found that hugging my emotions, my spirit went along. It's like our bodies and our spirits are connected. And I grew in my love relationship. I grew emotionally. And there's something about that. Well, what about the kissing? <laughs> there are five times that the New Testament commands us to give one another a holy kiss. Now, this past Friday, I discovered what a culture shock that this would have been to the Romans. I thought this was all Roman culture, you know, all first century culture. Actually, it was not at all. Uh, It was a major... They were just as uncomfortable with Paul's command as you and I are. The Romans were just as uncomfortable, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of that. But let me start by reading the command to the Roman Gentile Christians. Romans 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss... You could try to explain this by saying, well, Paul, he's a Jew, and Jews had this as a cultural norm. He's trying to impose his culture on the Romans. 
But we've already seen that Paul was extremely hostile to anybody imposing a merely Jewish custom upon Gentiles. He fought tooth and nail against any cultural norms being imposed on other cultures. No, I don't think you can explain it that way. What is most surprising to me is that Paul is not only commanding something that the Romans were not culturally used to, Paul was commanding civil disobedience to the Romans on this issue of the, uh, the, uh, the, the kiss. And again, I just discovered this this past week. Let me read from one scholar on Rome. He says, According to the Roman historian Suetonius, who lived from 69 to 140 A.D., the end result of this, and the this he's referring to, is uh, that there were Romans who were complaining about this recent innovation of Romans kissing each other, uh, he was saying the end result of this was that the emperor Tiberius banned anyone from using the Codityana oscula, that is, the friendly kiss of greeting. Now, since Tiberius reigned from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., it shows the period immediately prior to the writing of Romans was a period in which these Romans, it was illegal for them to be engaging in this kind of a kiss publicly. As one book said, Therefore we know that Paul was encouraging these churches to do something which was contrary to their own culture and even against the law. Paul was very familiar with their culture because he lived in these areas for months and even years. So he knew of the raised eyebrows and hardship that the practice of the holy kiss might bring to those who practiced it. And actually we do have some historical references of 1st century and 2nd century that Roman... Um, especially nobles, but Romans uh, ridiculed Christians for their kissing of one another. We actually have references uh, uh, to that. Now, that brings up the whole question of what we think about this. We think, well, we're going to look a little bit weird if we engage in this. Well, yeah, they did back then as well. So if you think this is cultural, here's four things, and, and maybe you're right, but here's four things that you need to uh, deal with. First of all, we have... Um, two Roman authorities who say this was not the culture of Rome, Suetonius and Marcus Aurelius. Second, we have one Roman historian, that'd be Suetonius, who said this was actually illegal in Rome. Third, and, and so for me, that, that, that's really something, that Paul is commanding something. It must mean it's very important for Paul that we express ourselves outwardly with this affection. Third, the command for a holy kiss was given to Rome, to Greek Corinth, to Thessalonica, and to Peter's congregation. This means it was cross-cultural command. It applied to all of the churches. Fourth, it is called a holy kiss. Now, anything that is holy means it's set apart by God. It's a holy kiss. In other words, God wants it uh, to be used. So that's a lot of evidence God wants us using and expressing our affection for each other uh, within the body with more than mere words. We're family. And because of family, granted, you can laugh at me on this issue. Granted, you can say, Phil, I just don't buy into this on this issue. But at least take me seriously enough to, to think through this and... Uh, and um, and uh, say, well, maybe Phil is right. Let me do a little bit of praying and studying on this. Actually, there are, some people think, what, do, what are visitors going to think? They're going to think we're weird. Uh, two weeks, three weeks ago, Chet told me, oh, thank you for that hug, Phil. I missed that so much from the previous church that I was in. There, there you go. Not all visitors think it's weird. 
<laughs> uh, he thought that was um, he thought that was pretty pretty cool. Now it may have seemed pretty odd to the Romans, but Tertullian said that the pagans were very much impressed that they, with the love that the church had for one another. Now, how was it done by the early church? The evidence seems to be that it was either a kiss on uh, one cheek or a kiss on both cheeks, and that's uh, hinted at by the expression that they fell on Paul's neck. Okay, Sort of like what the Arabs do, you know? Or it could be just on one side. Now, was the kiss given to men or... Uh, men to women or just uh, men to men and women to women. Well, the evidence is divided. There's a PCA pastor who, by the way, his entire church engages in this holy kiss. Um, He says, yes, that anybody could kiss anybody and others say no. Uh, The early church father, Justin Martyr, writing in 160 AD said, then let the men apart and the women apart salute each other with a kiss in the Lord. So, At least in his circles, in 160 A.D., it was the men kissing the men, the women kissing the women. And certainly here, it's the men kissing Paul, right? Now, I know some of you are squirming in your chairs already. (laughs) You're thinking, whoa. Uh, But there is more evidence. Despite some cultural nervousness over this, the history of the church and the history of this practice indicates that this was practiced universally at least up to the 10th century, it was practiced widely up into the 13th century. And uh, in the East, it never did stop being practiced. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, I checked on that, there's never been a, a time when they did not have the Holy Kiss. Now, during the Middle Ages in the West, it gradually began to disappear in some uh, regions. And then there were some pre-Reformation groups like the Albigenses and the Waldensians who revived it in the 1100s. Interestingly, during the Swiss Reformation, that portion of the Protestant church revived this and it was practiced widely, though most Protestants, you know, I think uh, just thought, well, this is just a cultural thing. Let's not, um, let's not worry about it. In the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland that I attended, and I don't know if this is true of all of them, but the one I attended, the elders were kissing everybody. I, at the time, I was just like very unnerved. I thought this was a little bit odd. When I was down in Shreveport a couple of weeks ago, a PCA pastor challenged me to rethink this whole issue. Uh, his whole church obeys this, and I was flabbergasted. I said, you've got to be kidding. Everybody does this? And they said, oh, yeah, everybody does this. I, I thought that, that was really amazing. But he pointed out this. What alternatives do we have? He says, we can't just say it was a Jewish custom because five times in the New Testament he applies it to the whole church. We can't say it was simply a first century culture, you know, that was universal back then because we already know that the Romans did not do it. He was bucking Roman culture and Roman law. It can't be seen simply as a recommendation because it's listed as a command five times. Let me read those to you. Romans 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13.12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Wow, if we interpret that literally, uh, there are no exceptions. I think actually what is significant about that was that Christian noblemen were kissing and and hugging um, Christian commoners as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we have hints from first through fourth centuries, that this was one of the things that made it so offensive 
uh, to, to uh, some of the Romans and why possibly, some people have uh, hypothesized this, why the emperor outlawed it. He's saying Roman nobles kissing Roman commoners as brothers and sisters, no way, unthinkable. And Paul says, Yahweh, we are brothers in the Lord. We are a family and God has leveled those kinds of distinctions. Anyway, going on. Uh, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. First Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, the evidence is so overwhelming that this is abiding command that John Murray, that stodgy old uh, crusty uh, <laughs> Scottish guy who couldn't show any emotion, he said, yeah, this is a binding command. He's dead now. He used to teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, and he wrote the probably the most famous book a commentary on Romans. But listen to his lament of how this has been lost to the Western church. He says, There can be no question, but the kiss was practiced as the token of Christian love. It betrays an unnecessary reserve. If not, loss of the ardor of the church's first love when the holy kiss is conspicuous by its absence in the Western church. Now again, you guys can be Bereans and check it out for yourselves and disagree with me on this. But while it's fresh on our minds, here's my recommendation. I recommend that at least the boldest among us or those who are convinced, you know, that this really is uh, biblical, after the service, let's greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, how do you do it? Not on the lips, you know. It's, uh, I recommend uh, you kiss on... Uh, I, I recommend go for the right cheek. Even if you're going to do the Arab one, go for the right cheek first and go for the less, uh, left cheek. But uh, I think I should illustrate. Is there any volunteer who would... Uh, <laughs> who would like... Here we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay, stay up here. There's, because there's different ways that we can do this. There's different ways that we can do this. And I think just... <laughs> I think just seeing this can be a helpful thing. Um, I think it would be good when you're greeting one another to bless them. There is a power we saw last week in, in speaking blessings into each other's lives. So say, the Lord bless you, or shalom, or something along those lines. And if you guys, if you guys don't want to do this, uh, let, let's see, what's, what's a hint on here? We could say, a holy kiss? <laughs> you say, yeah, you know, and, bless you. and bless uh, you. <laughs> yeah, the Lord bless you. Um, yeah, it'll all be on the microphone. <laughs> or what you could do is you could, um, if you're uncomfortable with giving one another a holy kiss, you could say, how about a handshake? You know, handshake doesn't qualify, uh, even though there are some. Um, uh, paraphrases. I think Philip says, give one another a holy handshake or something like that. that that's really not uh, cutting it. But if you're uncomfortable with this, just go ahead and say, well, I'm still thinking about it and I will 100% respect what you, are, uh, what you are doing. And then, you know, give one another, you know, a big, a big bear hug. I mean, there is something about the physical that takes what's in your spirit and makes it stronger. Okay? So let's um, go on. Now, for those of you who <laughs> slinking back to this chair, <laughs> okay, glad we had one bold uh, volunteer in the congregation. So now that some of you are really freaked out, and nervous about what's going to happen after the service, <laughs> let me try to give some hints of the positive that comes out of this. I think we need to wonder what are we missing out on when we don't express ourselves 
outwardly this way. Football players do, you know, and they consider this camaraderie. Nobody thinks they're gay when they do this. I know what's going through some of you guys' minds, you know, (laughs) on this. Nobody questions that on that. And for me, the question is, what blessings am I missing out on by not taking God at His word? What blessings am I missing out on? Sometimes those blessings could be tangible. Sometimes they are maybe intangible. But as Proverbs says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and He adds no sorrow with it. I am convinced every single command in the Bible is accompanied with a blessing. So, don't rob me of my blessing. You know, after service, unless you guys say, you know, a handshake or I'm still thinking about this, which I will totally respect, expect a smack on the cheek, okay, and a hug. (laughs) Okay, the last key to the power of God's Word that we saw last week is the love and relationship and the caring that's expressed in verse 38. Sorrowing most of all for the words which He spoke, that they would see His face no more, and they accompanied Him to the ship. What a beautiful, beautiful way to end this chapter. They obviously cared for Paul. Paul cared for them. They cared for each other. They were family. Now, some of you have actually told me this, that you have felt that the relationships you have within the body here have been more meaningful, more powerful than the relationships you have with your family because your family is not saved. You wish your family would have that kind of a relationship, but that's the way that it should be. And there are many scriptures which speak of God's power, God's blessing flowing into the midst of the brethren when they're united together in this way, when their hearts are knit together. My favorite one is Psalm 133. And let me read that psalm in its entirety. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There God commanded the blessing. So don't rob yourself of blessings by missing out on the context that these blessings come with. Like the man with the withered hand, don't be passive. Put away covetousness. Put away uh, laziness. As stewards who are diligent, compassionate, generous, prayerful, full-hearted, and loving, may God bless you. And His blessings will indeed flow in your life. When you experience those blessings, say, Lord, I want to use all of these blessings for Your kingdom and for Your glory. Amen. Thank You, Father, for Your Word, for Your blessings, for Your grace, for Your mercies which are new every morning. Uh, Father, there are many times where we have a secret uh, uh, things that we didn't even know were out of accord with Your Word. And uh, I want to give these brethren and sisters liberty to even disagree whether this is something uh, that we are out of accord with Your Word. But Father, guide and direct us and help us to be more full-hearted in our uh, love and our relationship with each other. Help us to put on the full context of covenant faithfulness so that the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 could flow and could flow richly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.